What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. This has become one of my favorite local hangs because they have free music every Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sunday afternoons 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. They are located in inner southeast Portland and not only do they offer free music on their, their large patio setup, but they've also got a killer brunch menu from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. The French toast and the breakfast sandwich are lights out. And I can't really do much alcohol personally, but I love their Virgin Bloody Marys. And they've got some other mocktails for folks like me as well. And they're always rotating in new seasonal cocktails. So come through and check out what they've got on deck for fall and winter down there. The patio is now nice, covered, and heated and will be throughout the fall and winter. So come through and big thanks to Produce Row for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Campbell Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning into the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will uh, give it more visibility on the national and international levels, helping strangers find the podcast and all that good stuff. Appreciate the hell out of all the folks that have already taken the time to do so. You can also just tell a friend about the podcast if you feel inclined to do so. Word of mouth is uh, always a, a great way 
to share this thing and the podcast is also available on spotify now and i've also been dropping some monthly playlists there as well so i'll put the link for that in the episode notes hope everybody is doing well out there sorry these last few episodes have been uh, a couple days later so i'm out here on tour with the band high pulp and been out for three weeks now with them lots of shows all across the country and uh, this last week was a real doozy i left my phone in the back of a lift in boston so uh, i was out of without a phone for uh about four or five days which is a real fun way to uh you know be playing tour manager with no no phone to access all the uh the info on the go but uh still doing the thing out here went to new york city for the first ever time which was also fun to not have a phone for and uh you know not have any thing to navigate and uh just you know kind of really having to to go with the flow out there which i think was uh it was good i tried to not stress out too much about the phone thing and uh i was able to retrieve it when i got to washington dc which is where i currently am right now i'm sitting in a a park in washington dc it's a little drizzly out here but uh not bad not bad high pulp played at this uh really cool venue called the pocket last night in dc and we are uh we're off to philly today for the remainder of uh the last stretch of this thing there's uh, about eight more shows and 12 more days and everything has become quite the blur and i will definitely uh I don't want to dive too much deeper into uh, all the tour stuff. I'll, I'll definitely do another uh, tour diary episode before I wrap this thing up next week or so. And I did one of those last week that I put out with my cousin Bobby, who's the, the drummer for High Pulp. So tap into that if that sounds of interest. Just kind of talking the first couple weeks of the tour and our adventures. And uh, the week before that, I had Abigail LaPelle from toronto canada on the show so you can check out those episodes but got a real special one here for episode 308 pretty stoked about this one i have been wanting to have john craigie on the show ever since i first saw him play and that was probably i don't know five or six years ago craigie is just one of these uh special songwriters to me and one of my favorites is Songwriting is this great mix between raw emotion and comedic relief through the creativity of the lyrics. And if you're a fan of singer-songwriters and folk music, this is one of those live shows that you should not miss. It is, uh, it's one of the most unique live shows that I've seen. And I think that says a lot considering it's just usually him and a guitar and can often feel like a one-man show. and it's kind of this one of one thing this uh this very cool experience similar to maybe what you get out of a, a stand-up comedian where you just really don't know what is going to happen in that room from night to night and uh it was just so cool to get to chat with him and i hope that maybe we get to do one in person sometime we recorded this uh, a couple months ago before his uh brand new album mermaid salt came out 
and that is now available. He made it with uh, another great songwriter, Bart Budwick, and uh, the album is available on vinyl and, and all the things. All the links will be in the episode notes as well, so you can keep up with John and check out his tour dates. This guy plays a lot of live shows, so uh, so keep up with that if you dig what you hear. And uh, it was very cool to, to get to dive in with him a bit about songwriting and this new Mermaid Salt record and, and the live shows and the different mentalities between making records and, and putting on the show. So we are going to get into that momentarily. If you live in the Portland, Oregon area, I would encourage you to come check out some free live music at Produce Row every Thursday night from 7 to 9 p.m. You can catch the Jeff Chilton Trio there every first Thursday. And uh, you can check out the calendar for all of the other dates, singer-songwriters, folk duos, DJs, DJs every Sunday over at Produce Row from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Lots of them spinning vinyl down there at Produce. So like I said, check out the uh, the calendar in the uh, episode notes. The links for all the sponsors will be there, including North 45 as well, who also has DJs going on in Northwest every Tuesday night and every Sunday afternoon. So lots of opportunity to see some free music in Portland. And... Uh, I hope everybody is doing well out there, finding uh, ways to to keep your head above the water. I also hope that this intro does not sound awful. I'm just, this park is in the middle of very busy streets. I'm just trying to get this thing in where I can while I'm on the road. And if you're in the New Orleans area, I will be there on May 26th. That's the last day of this high pulp tour at Gasa Gasa. Excited for New Orleans. We've got some friends there that we are staying with for a few days, and that's another spot that I've never been to. So come say hello if you are in the area. And like I said, stay tuned for another Tour Diary episode. We're going to get into episode 308 of the dan cable presents podcast john craigie is on the show big thanks again to john for uh taking the time to do this with me and uh thanks to phil his manager for linking this thing up and we are going to uh we're gonna kick this episode off with one of my favorite tracks off of that new Mermaid Salt album. It's called Drown Me. Let's do the damn thing. This air's tainted, I don't want another breath. Wrap your legs around me till I'm almost dead. Drown me, baby. Drown me, baby. I wasn't using my lungs for any good anyway. Them pretty boys, they couldn't handle your love. They all agree you're pretty bossy for up. Drown me, baby. Drown me, baby. I wasn't using my lungs for any good anyway. I gave up sugar, babe. I kept the salt. Your little anchor ain't as heavy as you. Cool. Thought. Well, uh. Fuck, man. I'm excited to talk with you. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and I've, I think I came to your, your music about five years ago or so, when, around the time that No Rain, No Rose came out. I uh, 
saw you playing at a Pickthon kickoff party. It was the first time I ever got to see you play any music, and that was just a, a few tunes, and then started kind of going deep on the records, and then got to see you play your full set out there at Pickathon that year, which was really great, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about, about the new record, Mermaid Salt, and excited to dive into all that, but would love to just kind of I don't know, try to get the full scope in some ways of, of how you get to where you're at now in your career, man. And I don't know, like, what do you remember about uh, picking up a guitar for the first time? And was that something that clicked in with you right away? Yeah, I think the dream of doing it had been there much longer than the, the thought that it was a possibility. Where I grew up was very non-musical, very like uh, square. I was in Los Angeles, but it was sort of a, the community was pretty just, I guess, you know, families, sports, education, and uh, just no one played music live. You know what I mean? We all were like, we all were obsessed with music, but it was also the nineties, you know, so music was, was like really big, you know, showy. Anyway, so I thought it was, music was something that had to be done by people like Mozart. You had to be like born with this and it was just not in the cards for me. But yeah, when um, one friend of mine who was really just intelligent and kind of on the outskirts of the that squareness, he was kind of more artistic. He had a guitar and he started showing me some stuff. And I think that's really where it kind of clicked. Yeah. How old were you around that time? 15. Okay. So like that leave behind, leave the fire behind collection of tunes. Is that like pretty representative of like the music you were listening to when you were growing up? Yeah, that's where that record came from, <clears throat> was stuff that I was learning. Like, you know, when I first got my guitar, I wasn't learning like, you know, I don't know what people start with, you know, Let It Be or like um, uh, Puff the Magic Drag. I don't know. But <clears throat> that stuff wasn't hip when I was a teenager. So it was things like Basket Case and Santa Monica and Hey Jealousy and One Headlight and Under the Bridge was the cool thing. Yeah. So. And were you like playing in bands of that sort before you started diving more into the the folk music, or was was this you always know, kind of your uh, lane? A little bit, but I was not good. I was very not good <laughs> at the time, you know. <laughs> so I was kind of self conscious about it. But yeah, when I got to college in Santa Cruz, yeah, there were a couple bands that I would play with, but um, more jammy, more just like house party type stuff nothing that had any focus yeah how quickly was it before you kind of started writing your own tunes when you started picking up the guitar pretty quickly i started to because that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be a writer as a kid so and i always loved songwriting so pretty yeah pretty quickly i started uh to um to do that but uh like like i said it took a while before it was good at yeah. all um i would say not until you know age 24 or so did i even begin to sort of realize how to write something that was decent and then even took me till about 30 to i think hit some sort of a stride yeah and are you were you uh doing like creative writing then like in some form before you even picked up the guitar then definitely yeah for sure. I was, uh, I think when I was a little kid, I wanted to be like a novelist, you know, uh, 
I read like a lot of Stephen King and Michael Crichton and uh, those kind of like, you know, I guess f fiction, like sci-fi. So I used to think along in those terms, but then I used to really love a lot of, uh, you know, Seinfeld and SNL and stuff like that. So I liked, I liked clever writing like that too. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I wasn't doing that, a lot of that in school, I guess, because my school was pretty square, but when I could. And were you uh, watching like a lot of stand-up too? Because obviously, I don't know, the style of what you do to me is is very much like often feels like a one-man show when, when you come to the, the live show. Oh, very much, yeah. I was, but yeah, really big into uh guys when i was a kid like 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 seinfeld and um eddie murphy richard pryor um like uh, rob williams I'm trying to think who was like big in the 90s ray romano uh yeah i'm trying to remember now it was harder to get access to it back then once i got to college and then like napster came out you know and um then i then i started hearing a lot more stand-up comedy and then um and then once Spotify hit, I don't remember what year that was. That really helped too. You know, that's when I, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Was, did that, uh, that style of doing a lot of talking in between songs and bringing some of those comedic elements work its way into what you were doing pretty early on as well? It took a while for that because one, I was pretty sh like shy up there. And two, the kind of gigs I was doing for like the first six years were more background stuff. So it took a while for me to have an audience that was actually listening. Um, and then once I had that, I started to then get comfortable with that part of it too. Yeah. What do you what do you dig about like opening up yourself that way during the live show and and talking about the tunes? Well, I think one for one, like my show isn't very like technically interesting. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you'll go see, uh, you know, Sam Smith or whatever, like a gorgeous voice, or you're like blown away by the vocals of of a person. Other times you'll go see someone like I don't know <clears throat> Eddie Van Halen, for lack of a better example, because you're blown away by the prowess of the of the instrument uh, or Punch Punch Brothers, you know. Um, uh, what's the guy's name from Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers? I know who you're talking about, and I can't yeah, think of his name. I should either. know this. I know his <laughs> name, but I just don't know him right now. Um, anyway, but I think for me, I realized that I didn't have those things, but um, I was a decent storyteller. So I think also too, I just think the audience likes to be uh, acknowledged. You know what I mean? <laughs> And when you're talking, telling them, when you're singing to them, it's different because we can sing in an empty room. You know, I can sing, but I wouldn't tell a story to my empty room. By telling a story, you're saying like, hey guys, I see that you're here. And uh, it, I think it adds that other human element to it as well, which is why I understand why some artists wouldn't want to tell stories. You know, if you're, if you're like Ozzy Osbourne or Metallica, you really want to create this sort of like mystical thing uh, which is what I grew up with a lot in the nineties. A lot of bands would just go up there. They would say like, hello, Los Angeles. And then that was it, yeah. <laughs> which I don't think is a bad thing. I think that, um, that fits into a lot of what, you know, you want from an artist sometimes. And 
or sometimes like you just don't want to hear like what Smash Mouth was thinking when they wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> not nothing against not to piss on Smash Mouth, but you know what I mean. Um, so, but I, it, it seemed that people were asking a lot of those questions anyway, so it helped me to to, to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I brought my my girlfriend to your one of your shows at the Aladdin recently, and awesome. she wasn't super familiar with your music, but her big takeaway was like the storytelling added so much attachment for her. And I think like, especially for a stranger coming to see the show, I think those things are like really nice. And I guess like the reason I even like doing this podcast is like, I feel like getting to talk to the, the artists that you admire or like enjoy listening to when you get to hear them talk about the tunes or what they were going through when they were writing something or just stories of their lives. It just like gives this additional attachment to the music, you know? Yeah, it's a gateway drug, I think, for sure. I can definitely have somebody come to a show, because a songwriter, a guy with a guitar, if you will, that's a hard sell to a friend, right? You know what I mean? Like, if your friend likes bluegrass, you can say, let's go let's go see some bluegrass. And they don't care who the band is, because they like bluegrass, or jam, or jazz, or hip-hop. But I think songwriting is so vague and has such a potential to be bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, a guy with a guitar singing about his feelings could really suck so <clears throat> to rope somebody in to you know i think humor and storytelling is a really easy way uh people like that stuff i like that stuff you know? yeah and do you feel like at this point the audience is very aware of what you do in the live show just because the live records are out there and they're also just kind of expecting that from you in a sense i would think so yeah i think that um that that's a big part of it and and which is i think true for a lot of artists once you kind of know what they do um it would be like if you went to the punch brothers and they didn't shred you know um van halen didn't do a solo that would be weird right yeah <laughs> but he also likes the solo you know that's why if i if i got to a point where i i mean i've done shows where i haven't talked you know i had i've had shows that i was under an emotional you know, condition at the time that I couldn't talk, you know, speak. So nobody rioted. So yeah, you know, it works out. Do you still kind of have those nights sometimes on a tour when you're a little less chatty than other shows? Yeah, it's rare though because the chatting is actually my the the therapy for me. It's really like what actually feels best for me. But um, so no, not it's very rare that that would happen nowadays. But in the old days, it's like one night you're playing to people who are listening the next night you're at a bar and no one's listening. So it was really just dependent on the, on the space really. But now once you, once you get, you know, a fan base in the control of the room, then you're sitting a little prettier. You know? Yeah. I remember, I remember even at that Aladdin show, you kind of spoke like how you're almost more comfortable just doing the talking rather than even oh, the playing. Yeah. That made that joke about how like music is kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. It is breaking into song in front of people. We think it's normal, but it's not that normal. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? For sure. Some nights I want to get up here and sing a bunch of nonsense. But I know my voice ain't good enough for bad lyrics. Oh, no. This is the first song this is the moment of truth If this one fails 
what good will the rest of them do? I'm trying to stay focused and stay in the moment. But all I can think about is if my fly is open, I swore I checked it before I went on. Maybe that was last night. I just can't recall. I'd ask you to check for me, but that's asking a lot. So I'm just going to check real quick and then I'll move on. So does it feel like completely different spaces for you as far as playing those live sets opposed to making a record? Like especially like the last three like the last three records you've made specifically seem to dive more into different production elements and whatnot and definitely have a completely different vibe than you just up there playing solo. Yeah, they're very different art forms, I think. And uh you know, the albums are so much more vulnerable because I'm not there when you listen to it. You know what I mean? At my show, I'm there, so I can feel if the crowd likes it, I can feel, oh, they're rowdy tonight, you know, or, but once you put that record out, you don't know what the person is thinking or how they're going to misinterpret anything. So uh, it's a different art form and, and it's a different, um, you're also giving someone this, this weird gift where it's like, here's something that's going to stay the same, you know, that you will, re you may revisit lots of, you know, I listened to Dark Side of the Moon probably a thousand times. It's always the same Dark Side of the Moon. I know that going in, you know what I mean? I still like it. I still want it. But when you go to see your a musician play, you don't, you might be like, Oh, he'll play this song or that song, but you don't know. You know that it's going to be all about the moment and he's going to, he's going to be like, it's going to be him in that moment. But right now I listen to dark side of the moon. You know, I think half those guys are dead. Uh, you know, Roger Waters is, you know, everyone. So it's, it's just an interesting thing. I think. Yeah, it just seems like there's those elements of showing up to the live show where you just like really don't know what's going to happen. And like if you weren't in the room that night, you maybe missed something like really special. And obviously you're playing off the audience and maybe whomever is yelling out in the audience and things like that don't happen the same way every show. Yeah, which also is what makes an album really beautiful, right? You know, um, I mean, I'd never got to see Lou Reed live. I heard like sometimes him live could be pretty uh, underwhelming, you know, uh, not to diss the guy. I love Lou Reed um, and I love every record that I have of his. So and but <clears throat> sometimes that happens where something like Walk on the Wild Side or whatever, which is a beautiful recording, that's always there for us, you know, and and I think that that comfort of consistency matters, too. I like that's why I like to have both you know i can have one of my songs be set in stone the way you like it and then every night at tour i can play different you know and yeah i think that's cool so with kind of that attitude going into it are you are you usually pretty good when you're making a record about kind of not worrying about how it's going to translate live and just kind of figuring out that when the time comes of course yeah the, the record to me is a chance for me to make something that's I couldn't do live. You know what I mean? Like uh, to make something because I have the time, I have the resources. It's weird. You know, I love, I'm a big Dylan guy. And those first um, like four Dylan records are just, you know, him and guitar. And I love those records. It's weird to think of. I would, I would never do that necessarily. I did do a record called Scarecrow, but that was more of like a, analog experiment but um i love those records i love i have a lot of 
old folk record, but you don't really hear that much anymore. You know, people doing that, I wonder, I don't know exactly why that is. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, and, and the audience has never once came to me and said, that didn't sound like the record. <laughs> you know, I think, <laughs> I think they get it. Maybe, I hope so. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's like what I really appreciate about the experience of like seeing you live, but then also diving into the records. But even though, you know, with Mermaid Salt, maybe even going deeper into the production than you've ever gone, or at least that's the way it feels to me listening to it. I think yeah. you can still always hear the songs at their core. Also, they're like never distracting from that necessarily. Ideally, thank you. That's the ideal. <clears throat> Ideally, you can write a song that's good enough that it didn't matter if you put that violin on there or not. It's just nice. <clears throat> but it, it, it can survive without it, I, hopefully. I write you postcards every day to remind us both that time is fleeting. I'm all alone here in many ways, deserted island, middle of the city. Did it uh, take you a while to feel like you were capturing that energy in the studio that you were able to like accomplish live? Uh, I'm not, what, do you, what do you mean exactly? Um, like, I don't know, since what you do live is so, feels so interactive with an audience, um, is it difficult at all for you to like channel that energy when you're just in the studio or is it more just about like feeding off the other musicians or people you're working with on the record at that point? Yeah, I guess I, I go in, I know I'm not trying to make it <clears throat> sound uh, like a live show, you know, although, you know, something like no rain, no rose, I wanted it to feel <clears throat> like people, you know, cause it was all of us in a room together. I wanted to capture that sound still different than my live show, but maybe not that different than a band's live show. Uh, so sometimes I want that sound. With Mermaid Salt, I wanted it to sound like uh, more of a, more symphonic, more of a construction, um, just because that's what I was listening to at the time, and I and I had never had the time to do that. Yeah. So that, that was part of it. One of the things I, I thought was really cool showing up to that Aladdin show is kind of seeing this it's very like wide range of age in the in the audience. Yeah, yeah. What do you think like attributes to that or has that kind of always been a, a constant for you? Like since you when your career started picking up a little momentum, did you always kind of notice that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer to that because I don't you know, it's so interesting to me when I look out there at the crowd I know that everyone has a different story of how they got there. It's not like when I was a kid, if you went to go see Sugar Ray or whatever, or Smash Mouth, it's like there was pretty much like a reason why we were all there. You know, maybe some of us had dug deeper. So when they hit like, I just want to fly, yeah. like that's like, okay, cool. We all, this is why we're here. And, you know, some of us have dug deeper, but nowadays even i think even if you're drake or beyonce it's not that simple right there isn't like not even are people not one hit wonders it's just like 
the way we digest music is so different. So I don't know what they want, <laughs> you know, in the audience. I, sometimes people will say that. They'll be like, oh, you didn't play in the list a song that's just not really one that most people want to hear. But in their mind, that's the hit because that's what they found me on. Um, so I, but I, the age range is awesome. And I don't know where that comes from other than I think, I do think, even like I was saying earlier, how songwriting is kind of a hard sell. It also crosses a lot of genre, a lot of people at the heart. They're always, you know, everything we like is a song, you know, whether it's hip hop or reggae or bluegrass or blues. And so if you're stripping it all down, I think that's what's cool about, about one person with one instrument is that I could play a song. It could be blues, right? It could be bluegrass. Could be, you know, we don't know until the other stuff gets added. So you'd hope that whatever you like, you would like one person. Yeah. <laughs> playing. Sure. I don't know. It's hard to say. So was it, was it college when you started getting a little confidence in what you were doing and feeling good about playing music in front of people? Yeah, you could say that. Confidence was a slow go for me, but Santa Cruz, where I went to college, was very inviting, very welcoming. So I remember freshman year doing a lot of open mics that were really scary for me, but people were uh, really cool uh, about, you know, supporting and stuff. And then I got, I was in a jam band in college, which I think helped a lot just because we played a ton, house parties, bars, to people who weren't really listening, but it got me more comfortable just like that, that feeling of being on stage. And I think that's a really hard thing for us as humans. You know, I think we are like tribe animals, right? Like if you go back and I think we're not as used to this notion of, of like everyone looking at you. It's just not a normal thing. Uh, so it's not in our DNA necessarily. Yeah. Maybe I meet people, maybe they were born from a lineage of like leaders or of, you know, maybe their ancestors were like generals in some war or something. I don't know. But in, I think in general, like we uh, as humans, it's it's um, not common. So I think we have to get used to it. And was there like some sort of uh, conscious decision you made about like really trying to pursue this thing or like? when you decided that you were just going to jump in the van and, and try to tour around and play wherever you could? Yeah, I think uh, I graduated. I taught um, math for a year in down south of Santa Cruz. And I really didn't like that. And I think that was when I, you know, that then things started coming up. I remember it was like in California at that time, you could, uh, teach without having like a teaching degree you could get you graduate college you have your i had like a, my bachelor <clears throat> and uh you could teach for one year but then you had to if you wanted to continue teaching you had to uh, like enroll in a program or something so I, it was kind of like it was a crossroads where they were like look if you want to keep teaching you got to go to school and i didn't want to keep teaching so <laughs> but then what was i going to do right so that's when i yeah i jumped in the band and were there were there like other folks that you knew that were doing that type of thing that kind of made that feel like a, a tangible thing to you no not at all the opposite actually i felt insane but what's cool is the moment you do it then you meet these other people out there and uh 
and that was really special and life-changing because you just you play a gig someone's also playing you know you're matched up or you go to you know go to boulder or austin or nashville or la you know and so you're constantly meeting these people and you're constantly sharing stories and you're like oh that's how you do it cool this is what i do and so that helped a lot because the community i was in even in santa cruz was kind of like so what are you doing you know <laughs> and i think back then there was this this i i was under this impression too that you you know there was this thing that i think we as a society also get hung up on is like we want to be granted like approval or access by some higher thing right so for example like i let's say i was like hey i'm a doctor you know you'd be like okay like have you passed your mcat <laughs> like do other people think you're a doctor you know um if i'm a lawyer you know there's like somebody tells me i'm a lawyer right you know what i mean right with music it's like nobody like i can i can just tell you i'm a musician and that's that right there's no degree or there's no license but when it comes to touring, when it comes to putting out records, in the old days, obviously, yes, there was like labels, right? There was management. There were things that said, here's James Taylor, you know, and here's somebody else who isn't, we don't know. So I think that was the hardest thing for me. I felt like an imposter for so long because nobody had like told me to do it or uh, nobody on, like on the, on the business side had even acknowledged me. So I think that, <clears throat> that can be really challenging in the beginning for sure. Yeah. What do you feel like were maybe some pivotal moments where you started kind of shake the imposter syndrome or maybe somebody validating what you were doing? Yeah, I think, well, you know, originally in the beginning you have the audience, right. That, and they come out and they pay money and they tell you they like it. That's awesome. Um, I think probably yeah, one of my first like ticketed shows was a big deal for me. Right. Because that was the first time, it wasn't just like people were in the room, you know, happened to be there. Um, I think, yeah, starting to get some like feedback from like other musicians who are saying this is good, you know, musicians that maybe were doing better than I was, which was nice. Um, getting accepted to like festivals can also feel really good because they don't have to take you. Whereas a venue, oftentimes, if you beg them enough, they're like, it's one night, whatever, let them play here. Yeah. But um so it's but I don't I can't it was such a long go. It was and as you know with your with ego it's like a thing can happen and you're like I've made it and then the next <laughs> night you're like I'm shit, you know. And so I think everyone is still on that path from the lowest person to Jack Johnson even, you know, we all struggle with our ego and whether or not we're we're making it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I think I saw something maybe it was even earlier today that like I know I'm an artist because it feels like I want to like give up once a week or something. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's very good. Um, and how long how long have you been up in Portland now? I know you've called this place home for a long time. Yeah, eight years. Eight years. What what brought you uh, up here? Yeah, I had been just doing van for a while, touring heavily, no home base which was really fun and really like romantic in its way, but uh, practical, not really. And uh, uh, I would come here a lot. Shook Twins, my dear friends, were living here. They were hosting me a lot. They were, you know, helping me put on show. You know, I would open for them. And it was just my favorite 
of the cities. I loved Austin. I loved New Orleans. I loved uh, the Bay Area, but this is my favorite. And and it became clear that it would be a a good place to move. And I was here one summer. I think yeah, summer of 2013, I think, and it was dope. And so I was like, all right. Yeah. Well, it seems like you, uh, yeah, surround yourself with a very inspiring group of folks that that live here with the like the Shook Twins and Louie and I know you made this last record with Bart. Yes, yes, it's a good crew, man. I mean, yeah, that, that but that was a big yeah. Sorry, the music scene also was a huge part of why I was here. I watched a lot of those Instagram sessions that you did during the pandemic, just you know, Thanks. playing a few covers and then playing one of your originals here and there do you still like really enjoy playing covers and do you feel like that informs your your songwriting diving into those tunes yeah i enjoy it a lot i don't really know if my audience does i mean in my live show i hardly ever but that's another thing about my live shows when you talk like i do it limits the amount of songs you can do which i don't mind um but it makes me like have a bit of like a scarcity mindset when I'm writing my set list. And so sometimes it's like, Oh, I have a, I, I like doing this JJ Kale song or whatever on stage. Maybe, I don't know if I do it that well. I also just have a, a lot of songs I want to sing on my own. So, yeah. but uh, I very much love doing covers and I miss, you know, I'm sure it will come back, but I miss the days of like post show at a person's house. We're all, singing songs that everyone knows which is that's that's very special and that's what makes i think what makes a cover so cool is like everyone knows it they don't have to know your shit they all know that yeah and you think like it also uh learning a new cover is also helpful for you just like accessing different things in your own songwriting oh very much so i mean i'm about to do i've been doing these beatles shows every year uh and those have been I think one of the reasons why I really like to keep doing them is, yeah, I, a band as diverse as the Beatles always has me learning new. I mean, I know I always knew a lot of Beatles songs, but to really dig into it and make myself cover a whole album uh, is, you know, just right now learning like the Let It Be songs, Dig a Pony, Long and Winding Road, um, I Me Mine. These are songs that like have changes in them that I would never think of. And it's like, oh, cool. You, yeah. So I that's my advice to a lot of beginning songwriters is like learn every song you can because you you just learn so much about songwriting through that just structure and yeah just how different chords can work together how you can bridge the gap somewhere yeah i can always tell you know and i hope this doesn't sound cocky but like if i'm watching a beginning songwriter i can tell if they have been like learning other music or just listening to other music i remember the songs i was writing in the beginning before I had learned a lot. They're weird. I mean, they can be kind of cool in their weirdness, but also I think you, yeah, you're missing out on some of the like true tools of the trade. Yeah. I, I just think it's always cool to see like someone you dig like yourself. Like I love your songwriting. So to like hear your takes on, on these different tunes, I think is always nice. Like even going back to that, collection of tunes that are all all 90s jams because that's all like my era of growing up as well and just to you know hear how you piece things together or just the different delivery of things to give it you know that craggy feel to it even though it's not your own song I'm 
still dreaming of your face Hungry and hollow for all the things you took away Oh, I don't want to be your good time I don't want to be your fallback crutch anymore I walk right out into a brand new day Insane and rising in my own Hey everybody, just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 Pub, located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall with over 200 bottles. Muscles and Fritz are on the menu. Their cheeseburger is lights out and they've always got some killer weekly specials as well. Aside from the menu items and beverages, they've got this awesome covered patio that is heated throughout the fall and winter with a bunch of big screens to watch all your favorite sports. And the best part is they have DJs playing tunes there every Tuesday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and Sundays 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So come through North 45 Pub for some tunes and some food. Let's get back to the episode. Obviously, you uh, have spent a lot of time on the road throughout your career. So I was curious just like how this pandemic was for you. Did you feel like it was this necessary break that you didn't know that you needed or was it just like incredibly difficult to not be around people and playing shows every night? Yeah, it started off pretty, pretty difficult, I guess. I mean, it's a privileged thing to say that, you know, in the sense that uh, it was more my ego and more of my, you know, it's, I kind of compare it to like a lover, you know, if you had a lover and you guys got along really well and all of a sudden you couldn't see them, you know, that's bad, but it's yeah, just for you. It's just, it's, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, there's gotta be a better like hallmark metaphor for it, but, um, you know, it's, you had something and you don't have it anymore. So, but I, I, it, it kind of got me to figure out other parts of my life to find, you know, uh, satisfaction and joy. And, um, and so that's where like mermaid salt kind of comes as I was able to then, because normally when I record a record, it's like I'm on, I'm on tour and I have like seven days in Portland, let's do this. So to be able to say, all right, let's, let's really work on album production. Like I never had before. So that, that brought me a lot lot of, uh, pleasure and joy in. yeah do you think that like really shaped your approach in making the record and why yeah. why it explores different dynamics yeah had there not been a pandemic it would be have been a very different record you know <clears throat> incredibly different yeah i think right from the the get-go of the the opening track microdose you just yeah. kind of feel that there was a there was a shift that was like kind of happening and uh i don't know do you feel like this is maybe like the the grooviest record that you've made in some ways as far as leaning in to some of That's the a good question I'll, I'll, i'm interested to see what the people what the listeners think um definitely the most attention paid to uh rhythm tracks and um i have been listening to a lot of uh of these kind of like uh, lo-fi hip-hop stuff when i made this record so 
um, yeah, hopefully people will pick up on that. I'm hoping. Yeah, man. That's like one of my favorite elements of the record is that like diving into some of the programming drums feels on it just like gave things such cool character. And I think like all of that kind of exists throughout the whole record, you know, and, and just kind of the th- things that you fucked with, with on distance where it feels like you're listening to kind of this warped vinyl, but it only feels like it's affecting the keys in some way. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Is, is that stuff that, uh, that you're like super hands-on with in the studio sitting in the mixing room? Yeah, it was a really, really great session we had there with Bart in Eastern Oregon. I kind of came in with some of these beats and I, I used my garage band more than I ever had before in the demo process. And then um, because we, we weren't doing like these live takes, I was then able to sort of be right next to the drummer where normally I'm kind of focused on what I'm playing and to be able to just sit there with Cooper or Justin, whoever was playing at the time. And, and uh, that was really nice, yeah. But I like taking that role of conductor, even sometimes more so than than playing on the record, you know what I mean? I could lose you to the drugs All the best ones But you would no longer crave my embrace I could lose you to our paranoia Deep and heavy traumas and all the crazy thoughts that we might think. I can lose you to another man who could be around more than I can show up and simply hold his stand. Yeah, and like, what is uh, what does Bart offer to you in the room as far as you know running the board and working with you on this record? Yeah, Bart is offers kind of a lot of freedom. <clears throat> he offers, uh, he's very quick and good with the tools and is good with sort of um, rapid shifts. So if I say, all right, forget the drums, let's run over to this station and now let's do this um, this Rhodes part. And, uh, and, but Bart will chime in when needed, but also trusts the artist. Where I think some engineers, um can't help it they might say actually you're gonna want to do this also bart what the best probably part about bart is he knows i don't want it to sound that good you know and i think that's something a lot of engineers will say it's like well to get the best possible Mm. sound let's put you in this iso booth let's put this mic on this thing i think bart knows that i don't want it to sound that good because i don't want it to to lie to the audience, you know, I'm not, I am not that good at those things. I want the voice to sound real. I want yeah. my guitar to sound like me. And so, um, he's, he's really good at that. But then when you need him, you know, to fix something, he's there for you. So he's great. Yeah. I, I have definitely, uh, I don't know when I was younger and growing up, I was kind of felt like I always loved that, that polished perfect feel. And now it feels like the, the authenticity of maybe those moments that aren't perfect and is, is more important and like feel, feel over everything. And yeah, well also to Bart is he has a similar uh, catalog brain catalog that I do of, he knows all my references. So if I say, okay, let's do, um, you know, this guy Clark, you know, sound or this um, 
<clears throat> you know, what, whatever I'm referencing, Bart's right there with me. And I think it's hard for me sometimes if I'm working with someone who, whose inner catalog is not the same. We've never heard of that, at least. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, so Bart and I, I think that's why we initially worked well together in the beginning is because he would know what I was saying. I'd say, I want that drum sound. He'd say, I know exactly what it is. You know? Yeah. And is it uh, is it easy for you to kind of get out of your own way at times and hear out other people's ideas for songs, even if they're not necessarily your original vision for something? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I'll, I will never understand. There's these artists out there who will like play every instrument on the record, you know, which again, that's that's their choice. But for me, I would never want to do that because the brilliance of hiring someone else is that they will do something that you never would have thought. And you can give them direction. <clears throat> but ideally, I, the artists know to never do exactly what I say <laughs> because <laughs> that's how you get this the magic moments. For sure. Do you think this is uh, that you reached a different level of vulnerability with this record as far as uh, lyrics go? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, you know, I, fe I feel that each one is that sort of uh, bearingness or that honesty. Um, I think because <clears throat> this one comes maybe from a more collective sadness or a collective loneliness that we were all experiencing this maybe hopefully it'll hit harder it's hard to say i i mean just with with distance alone i've been getting a lot of people telling me that they feel connected to that so i think it's starting to work hopefully yeah i don't know it's wild man like i am california it's kind of my favorite song out of your catalog and it's just like one of my favorite songs in general since that that record came out but in kind of set this bar to me in some way and i feel like every song on this record gives me a similar feeling or like resonates in that way that's good to hear thank you just uh you know songs like future tripping and yeah just thank you yeah yeah i just feel like there's like a lot of uh a lot of particular lines of lyrics that i find myself attached to with this particular album and not that that hasn't existed throughout your catalog of of tunes it just feel, felt like it was just this constant thing the whole time with this one thank you that means a lot to you don't say that you pray for me it offends the other gods don't say that you pray for me it offends the other guys Don't die With your love Don't die With your love You lose It all and how much uh writing are you doing on other instruments than guitar if any uh well that's my main instrument i think what was also cool about this record is that i wanted to not have the guitar be the central instrument of so i tried to go about half and half 
I'm not a very good piano player, but I really love the piano. And so luckily I had access to Justin Landis, Cooper Trail, and Nevada Salar. Also, they're all great piano players. So I was able to, um, to work with them and let that, so something like Distance, which was initially on guitar, I didn't want, I wanted it to be on piano. Um, yeah, so I look forward to the day when I can be beginning things on piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that would, I think that would be even, even better. I think when my, when musicians that I, I well, even like someone like Tallest Man on Earth, I don't know if you know him, there was a record he put out where there was some piano tracks in it. You know, you really feel it. Um, Leif Volabek is another artist I love. And yeah. he, I had a record of his that was more guitar based. And then um, Twin Solitude came out, which is a fantastic record. And that was more piano. So I think it's a good thing to do as a, as a writer, you know? Yeah. It just seems to like, I don't know, open up the pocket a little bit more rhythmically, even for the the vocal too, when you're not like just yeah. relying on that guitar line or that acoustic guitar being the, uh, yeah. the main driving force. Well, yeah. Someone like Neil Young too does that. Something like Harvest has a lot of great, uh, and after the gold rush or two albums, I think that are, are brilliant because yeah, you'll go from one piano led song to a guitar led song. And uh, obviously the Beatles <clears throat> are really good at that too. Um, yeah, in this day and age, I sometimes I can get a little tired sometimes with the record. Every song kind of starts the same with just, you know, which I think was something that maybe I, I could, could have seen myself getting into. And I was wanted to shift that. Yeah. And I think like some of those program drums really like give those in like those outros and leading into the next songs, give it some of those cool feels too, where it doesn't feel like it's the, the same intro to each song and whatnot. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Mermaid Solid to me was all about the outros. I was really into composing sweet outros. Yeah, and the string arrangements are fucking beautiful on it. Yeah, that's uh, Bevan Foley from Colorado, Trout State Revival. She is the same uh, string player on No Rain, No Rose. We brought her back in. She's my favorite. And yeah, she did amazing work. Do you feel like Street Mermaid is maybe one of like the most experimental songs that you've put on a record? I hope so. I hope that it gets taken that way. Um that one was was one that came out of it. it was very folky that I had written, and I really, uh, you know, really wanted to break away from um, that sort of regular guitar strum. And so, I think that's probably one of the more complex tracks on the record, and uh, <clears throat> and pushed. I think pushed me in the terms of of drums. We we had so many different drum things going on there by the end that um i was a little nervous at first i think to to put that out there but yeah it's i think probably would be i hope yeah you never know how people will take these songs so i hope so yeah i don't know it just uh i think i think it's cool to like see those progressions on records and like taking those risks to do something completely different Especially, yeah. you know, when you're labeled as like a folk singer, but you're diving into this thing that feels super psychedelic and experimental totally. and totally. takes you on a journey a bit. And but then you get like the relief of the song that follows and whatnot. Yeah. Yes, that's the hope. Yeah.
did uh, Asterisk of the Universe inform how you made this record a lot? Um, maybe only in the sense of, <clears throat> you know, I was satisfied with that uh, record, so I didn't need feel the need to revisit a lot of those things. Um, and I was, uh, you know, that one was like the ultimate of the like everyone in a room together thing, which I loved. But probably having done that and fe feeling good about that made me feel more comfortable with this thing. I think something that can happen to an artist is that you will forever be chasing uh, like a certain sound. And so, and maybe that's why your albums sometimes always sound the same is because you've never um, been able to hit it. You know, and I think early on, a lot of stuff that I put out in the 2000s, which is like not available because it's, I've scrubbed it because it's not very good. I think that was a lot of me trying to sort of chase a certain sound that that maybe by the time I got to Montana Tale, I, I sort of found it. And then I think I was able to then start moving on. Yeah. Not to, not to say that, I mean, I'm, I'm always, <clears throat> uh, I'm never satisfied with the record. You know, I think that's, I've never, I never am like, this is great. You know, I think, I always say, never trust a musician who's like, this is my best work. Like, it ain't your best work. <laughs> If they're telling you that you want your musician to be like, yeah, it's okay. Because <laughs> then, you know, it's going to be fucking good. But when they start coming to you, like, this is my best album ever. It's usually like one of the worst. ones. <laughs> you want the artist to kind of hate it. That means, you know, he really, he or she, or they really wrestled with it. Really went through a lot of demon stuff and that's good. But at the same time, can you like feel it as far as knowing when a song belongs on a record or deserves yeah, course, to be cut you, know, you, I, you wouldn't put it out if you didn't if it wasn't doing that that uh there's an interlude track on asterisk the used it all up yeah that one with the rainbow girls i was curious yeah. with us with the song like that are you still writing the lyrics even though someone else is singing them yeah with that track i had written that song um as an interlude <clears throat> for myself and i was had this vision to make it sound old timey like a, and, but at the time rainbows are, are dear friends of mine and they had just done this cover of smoke rings by Les Paul and Mary Ford where Aaron was playing that slide guitar. And so initially they were going to, um, they were going to uh, just sing behind me, you know, like normal, but the more we kept doing it, the more I just liked them. And I, kept thinking back to things like great gig in the sky on dark side. Um, a few other, other artists who have that on the record where it's like, uh, they don't, you know, I thought, well, this also will showcase how the vibe is in this living room. Cause there were a lot of times where people were just singing my song. So yeah, I didn't, I play nothing on that track. And, uh, uh, you know, that was Aaron arranged that, um, that's my, my lyrics and my melody and stuff, but, she did an amazing job making it sound that I could never have done like that. You know? Yeah. Is that exciting for you to see things unfold like that? Maybe not even that particular song, but just songs in general then on records oh, since yeah. they do come. Yeah. To I had an idea once to like make a record where I actually didn't do anything. I mean, I didn't, I wrote the songs, hired a band and hired a vocalist and, and I just uh, produced it. But I think that would be weird. <laughs> I don't think like the world would, 
<laughs> the internet. But wouldn't that be cool, you know? Yeah. Right? If you got like a, an album by, um, you know, Bruno Mars, but it wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't, he just, I don't know. You know, it's a weird, it's a weird flex, but. I mean, I, th- I think it's still like, yeah, it showcases the the songwriting and those yeah. initial ideas. So I think that would be rad. I mean, I think that's why I even dug that used it all up track so much because it felt yeah. it felt so different from everything that was happening on the record, but it still felt like it b- belonged there. You know, it didn't feel out of context. Yeah, that's I good. <clears throat> I was... I was curious to see how it would be taken. So yeah, it's good to hear that. And kind of the same thing how I felt about Street Mermaid. Yeah. You know, in Thank a, you. In a I think an album should do that. An album should be a little different and make you kind of question have you know, have a discussion in your own head even is like, do I like this? Is this right? You yeah. Know I mean? Yeah. I want some curveballs on there, you know? Like yes, yes. it's like a jazz record. Like I want those fucked up moments where the band goes completely out. So the ones that like feel tight and in, you know, provide that like tension and relief. I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And is is album still like your thing as far as a listener? Or are you always somebody that's still gravitating towards listening to a record front yeah. to back? Very much so. Very much. It's uh, in this day and age, <clears throat> it's weird for me. Like when an artist are like just drops a single, you know, I support that. I mean, I did that this fall, but uh, if there's an album, I'm going to go all the way through. You know, you got to. Are you someone that? just constantly gravitates towards picking up your guitar rather like whether you intend to or not kind of on a, a daily basis or even when you're out on the road and not playing your gig is it something that's usually in your hands or yeah there's always songs that are being shaped some songs come all at once as you know and those are great but I, I have a lot of songs that come in pieces to me and I know that if I don't check in with them each day or then I, I'll miss something you know I think that's what I really like uh, being on tour. I think I actually do it more when I'm on the road because when I'm home, I'm either uh, busy with tour prep or stuff. So when I'm on the road, there's this much more rigid schedule. I have that two hours of downtime after sound check before show where I'm just backstage hanging and I get to check in with all these songs that I'm working on and see like, okay, any new lines today? No. All right. And, and that's a, uh, special and i'm also there's always a cover i want to learn or these beatles songs i'm working on so uh yeah i really like that and being that you're playing solo most of the time does that like give you the opportunity to just like try those songs then if you want to like if you got a new idea you can just do it because you don't have to worry about informing the band or anything like that very much so yeah yeah any big like takeaways from the experience of making this record that you think you'll uh, take moving forward into making the next record or anything that in particular that that stood out making mermaid salt? Yeah. I think just the freedom of, of knowing, um, you know, what you can get with splicing up, up a track with um, really, yeah, I think, you know, really focusing on the rhythm tracks more. So I think I'll probably move forward with that in mind. And yeah, I think maybe just going a little slower with the production can be really fun. So I, I could see myself bringing that to the next one. You know, even if I do it live in the studio with musicians. Yeah. You think you'll like set aside a little bit more time 
for making those records and not just having that seven days off tour if you can i have the time yeah <laughs> if, if not though i think using synthesizers drum machines drum loops is something that uh i really enjoyed and i hopefully as long as there's no riots with this record i think that um i had something i could use again in the future well yeah and i think it's exciting from an audience member's standpoint to get to hear what these songs sound like stripped down because there is so much more going on than just the acoustic guitar yeah thank you i was i was curious uh what it's been like for you to form that relationship with jack johnson and like what it's been like for him to kind of champion what you're doing yeah it's been great he's such a supportive friend and really wise you know he's he's been in the business for so long and been in a sort of different part of the business than i have so i can call him uh with a lot he's given me a lot of good advice with these things and um yeah it, it's really nice i think he helped so much just with uh doing that run and yeah i look forward to that friendship he's he's a really cool guy really nice guy and him just like wanting to like come out and play some tunes with you on on stage not just like have you out but participate in the thing in the live sense yeah it's incredibly uh you know flattering and incredibly it's an honor to you know to have that and um but also i just to watch how he handles himself not even musically but like as a quote-unquote celebrity if you will or someone of that status of notoriety very inspiring to see him just yeah in his ego you know his relationship with that and his he's very uh yeah he's very cool with that and i think that's something that i can i think a lot of people can learn because that's something that can happen in this business where things will start to get good and uh you can really lose focus and you can really lose the, your sense of reality. Yeah. Is that like also maybe the importance of, you know, having relationships with the people back in Portland, like the Shook Twins and all these folks that you make records with regularly as far as maybe keeping yourself grounded in yeah. some way? Yeah. Another musician is always there to, to remind you that you ain't shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> absolutely you know and this in the same it's family you know like <clears throat> your mom's never gonna jack johnson's mom isn't gonna be like wow you know she's gonna be like wash your dishes you know she's it's good <laughs> friends like that what do you what do you dig doing when you're not playing music man i really like uh <clears throat> listening i got a great vinyl collection here in portland i love vinyl i love cooking i love hiking uh, i'm going out to the gorge tomorrow i'm going to go to tunnel falls this time i you know i'm a big waterfall junkie so um that's really special to me uh the proximity of nature here and reading cooking uh yeah those things are kind of kind of something that, that i like to do at home for sure well i super appreciate you uh giving me some of your time i think this mermaid salt record is uh one of my favorite things that uh, is going to come out this year. And uh, it's definitely my favorite John Craigie record. Wow, my, fav my, fav you. my favorite tunes are on this album. And uh, yeah, I just, like I said, it just felt like listening front to back, which I've done several times now in the last 
couple days that uh, I was there's just so much to to dive into with this one you know it's one of those records that I think you pick up on not just like a different line of lyrics each time but um just different moments happening in the production and those transitions and whatnot thank you thank you I have to know where we're at with the bean sponsorship <laughs> where, is, uh, where are we at with the bean sponsorship john hold that thought look what someone just sent me <clears throat> i have a uh, i got a p.o box here in portland and somebody mailed me this huge can it wasn't blue runner sadly though it was just a a, a lovely person but um <laughs> i think uh yeah we got i gotta keep pushing we are at we at the same place we were probably when i told you that story but <laughs> We're pushing for it. Blue Runner Bean sponsorship on the way. Mermaid Salt available. Bottom corner of the entire episode. Um, Everybody should, you know, grab a vinyl copy of this this new record from John Craigie. I'll put all the the links in the episode notes so that people can uh, keep up with you. And we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show, which is it's a program. So if we could get the John Craigie, it's a program. It means absolutely nothing. It's just the way my grandfather says the news program. He says, yeah, I just say it's a program. You did it. That's John Craigie. Everybody he's doing, he did the thing. Um, big thanks again, man. I appreciate you. Uh, doing this with me and and chatting with me about your tunes and uh i want to play it out with one of my favorite tracks off the record which is called finn and uh i was curious what you meant you you have that line on this one that's uh about your pain being fictional yeah well this is a this song is um i'm not really big on talking about what songs are about but this one i will talk about on stage is about a dog actually that passed away that was friend's dog so and she had told me that the thing that she loved about dogs is that they have that unconditional love for their their owners masters whatever you want to say parents and um so that yeah the the message i wanted to put forth for the family was this dog kind of speaking to them and just saying you know yeah sort of an afterlife kind of thing so the pain that he had been through in the last year of his life was no longer well this is uh this is finn that's john craigie off of uh the new mermaid salt record and uh that is the jelly jams and we will catch you on the flip side portland i get lost in the middle and always have been so fast But you know we write our best songs After the first date and the last Oh, oh, oh. Even the perfect way Oh, oh, oh. Ends with you falling off the board Oh, oh, oh. I suppose I am perfecting my fault. Hey, just want to give a big shout out to Distro Kid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to Distro Kid for their support. 
of this thing and make sure you go into the episode notes and find that distro kid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership with distro kid making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you so make sure you take advantage of that and the link is also in uh, the link in my instagram bio on the link tree so you can find it there as well big thanks to distro kid stay up stay tuned